This podcast is for information purposes only and is not and should not be construed as professional advice or an offer or commitment by any Rubberbank group member to enter into a transaction. The views expressed by the presenter and or guests are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Rubberbank. Please see the podcast description for our full disclaimer. Welcome to RoboTalk's Growing Our Future, where we talk to experts from both here in New Zealand and across the world to bring New Zealand farmers and growers the information they need to make informed strategic decisions about the future direction of their business to ensure they continue to thrive in a fast-changing world. The US is the world's largest exporter of food and a major market for New Zealand's own food exports. But while we regularly hear about Europe's sustainability attitudes and requirements for its farmers and growers, little is actually discussed how farmers and growers in the US are approaching sustainability. What does sustainability mean to them? What is being done to improve on-farm sustainability? And how is sustainability influencing the purchasing behaviours of US consumers? I'm your host, Blake Holgate, and in this third episode of our Global Sustainability Insights series, we will be examining the challenges and opportunities that sustainability represents to farmers and growers in the US. To provide us with these insights on the US, I'm very fortunate to be joined by someone with extensive knowledge and experience of all things sustainability right across the supply chain, from working directly with farmers and growers, to working with major food companies, to now working for Rubberbank. I'm very pleased to introduce the Vice President, Rural Sustainability for North America, Christian Barkin. Christian, welcome to Growing Our Future podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. Glad to be here and looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, no, likewise, it's always good to catch up. Christian, look, before we kick into the details and nuts and bolts, always like to have our, our guests tell us a little bit about themselves. So can you tell us about your career and your current role with Rabobank? Yes, absolutely. So thank you so much for the introduction. I've been fortunate enough to have 20 years experience in sustainability. So I started my career at BASF, the chemical company, and spent 18 years at BASF and about half of that in developing sustainability models related to addressing the needs of BSF customers. I migrated from BSF to a trade association in Washington, D.C., and uh, spent a few years, you know, dealing with uh, policy and policymakers and meetings at Congress and at the White House, and then uh, worked for Syngenta for a little bit and uh, came to Rabo. Part of my career has been related to creating sustainability strategies for multinationals, or at least helping them identify the journey in the first sustainability strategy that many of the brands and uh, agriculture producers have uh, been embarking on over the last few years. I basically learned sustainability by doing Excellent. And look, in, in 20 years in sustainability is, is an extensive experience um, and really keen to tap into that. So when we talk about sustainability within the US context for farmers and growers, you know, what does that look like? What does that mean? And are those pressures and definitions around sustainability, have they changed at all over that 20-year period? Yeah. So I've had the opportunity being early on in the space to try to explain sustainability to people that had very little interaction with it. And I've held a tagline of, of doing more with less my entire career. And the reason for it is that at the end of the day for food and agriculture, sustainability translates into an opportunity to produce more food with less input so we can feed 10 billion people. So you almost need to double the amount of food over the next 30 years with the same input as today. And I think if you 
positioning like that, regardless if you're a agricultural producer or a processor, you can actually resonate with either bits and pieces of that or the whole concept as a whole, because it, it is more inclusive in terms of an action plan and a business model related to it. I don't think the U.S. farmers and ranchers are different. I've had numerous conversations with producers that maybe had a different interpretation about the topic of sustainability and a different understanding. And as soon as you explain it as doing more with less, a balanced approach of continuous improvement, that's going to help us feed the world at the end of the day, they get it. They understand that environmental stewardship is as much important in sustainability as social diligence, taking care of people and uh, economics. So they love the part that sustainability is pretty much 33% economics. And, and this needs to be put in balance with everything else in terms of action. Yeah, I really like it when I put to you, you know, sustainability must have changed a lot over 20 years and you basically go, not really. Um, like the, the fundamentals are, are doing the same, right? It's doing more with with less and, and, and I'm sure that's a message that will really resonate with our, our listeners because that, that's really good, not just from an environmental perspective, but that's pretty good fundamentals from a business model perspective as, as well. We might pick up on, on that a bit more soon. But within that context, I'm assuming there are sort of specific environmental pressures within the, the U.S. environment that farmers and growers are, you know, are grappling with, like, like all producers around, around the world. Specifically, what, what are some of the key issues that are relevant within the U.S. environment? I mean, so much depends on the market segment, and it's so hard to answer the question appropriately without the materiality analysis per market segment, maybe per sub-region for that operation. At the end of the day, you gotta you want to start your sustainability journey with that because it's gonna look different from farmer to farmer ranching operation, even field by field. But trying to put it all together, I would say probably number one and two hotspots or opportunities in sustainability for U.S. agriculture, as they are perceived by farmers and ranchers, are water use and availability and soil health. And the reason why I'm saying that is because we have had recently a tremendous amount of changes in water availability with the rains that we got in the last couple of months and in the winter that, you know, dumped a lot of snow in parts of the country that were under drought. So I think we're a much better place today in a lot of the country than we were a year ago. But with that said, I think not, water availability, especially for large producers, is probably the number one thing that's, that's in everybody's mind right now. So soil health is somewhat hand in hand with that because the more nutritious the soil is, the more organic matter it has, the higher the soil health score is, it would allow you to produce more yield or maintain the yield in spite of dramatic changes in drought or precipitation, and at the same time reduce the amount of cost for farm inputs such as fertilizer. And the relationship to water there is that the same type of increased organic matter in the soil actually allows you to penetrate the soil a lot better with permeability where plants are actually able to extract water directly in some cases from the aquifer without the need of irrigation. So so it all works hand in hand, but I would say those two aspects are probably the ones where everybody would say, yep, that's it, that's pretty much what I care about the most. And take your point around different 
states, regions, individual farms will have their own specific pressures and, and pain points to address. Interesting though, what about from a greenhouse gas perspective? Because greenhouse gas emissions from New Zealand is, is certainly a, a hot and relevant topic and, and something the sector and, and, and farmers are, are grappling with. You know, How is that playing out in the US market? So it is a topic, especially for the corporate world that buys basically the produce from the farmers and the ranchers. And they're Individually, many companies, especially publicly traded companies, have made commitments to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by a certain amount or even to net zero by a certain period of time. So that drives actually the attention around the topic more so than what we have at the, as opposed to New Zealand at the regulatory level. So one aspect that we need to take into consideration is that U.S. agriculture works a lot with carrots and not that well with sticks. So you need to almost identify for any kind of transitional or transformational action, the carrot that's going to allow the individual producers to recognize that there is a benefit out of that. And because of that, they're going to go start the path towards that transition. And greenhouse gases out of all the sustainability impact categories, I think the from a business model perspective, is probably the hardest to quantify unless you translate it into carbon sequestration in the soil because that one is could be used as a catalyst to actually enhance organic matter and organic soil. So I would say if intrinsically from looking at the operation, I wouldn't say that the farmers and ranchers would put greenhouse gas emissions at the top of the list. Now, because of, let's say, discussions with their customers and because of certain expectations from the markets that they would do something. It's a it's a more elevated topic than it was before, but not necessarily to the extent that it is in other parts of the world. And we'll pick up on some of those supply chain drivers a little bit more soon. But before we do that, interested in your comment around, you know, more carrot and, and less stick, particularly in respect of, of regulators, because in New Zealand, you know, we certainly feel that stick element from our regulators, amongst other drivers. So, you know, what does that look like from the regulatory point of view, whether it's greenhouse gases or, or soil health or, or water scarcity or availability that you mentioned before, what, what does that carrot look like in the form of regulators? And, and, and I appreciate there's different levels in the US at your federal and state level, but, you know, holistically, you're able to give us a bit of a, a taste or, or flavour, Christian? I mean, it is to a certain extent, it's your political legacy on whether next time when elections come, depending on how you play your cards today, you're going to have people that are going to be voting for you or not. So because of that, and because people realize that the society in the U.S. likes to organize itself rather than expecting the government to do stuff for them, I think there is an awareness, regardless of the political spectrum, on we got to create some carrots. And if you look at, I mean, case to the point, if you look at the last Inflation uh, Reduction Act that set aside a huge amount of money for farmers and ranchers to engage into climate-smart agriculture practices, it's all about carrots. Like, it's all about giving away money for certain things to happen with the incentive that the farmers and ranchers will take certain actions related to reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. So... It's a little different at state level, depending on the state. So California has a lot more regulations in place than most, if not all the other states, probably combined at some point. But um, they are a lot more in, uh, prescriptive in terms of 
can and cannot do. If you talk to producers in other parts of the of the country, they think of California a little bit as an oddball. So I do not know if we're going to see that expanding to the federal level or other states as much as California. So it depends. Again, so much depends on where you are and what you need to follow. I would say you pay a lot more attention in the U.S. to what's happening within the supply chain and what exactly your customers are expecting from you with the understanding that if they're asking for something extra that doesn't bring immediate business value, you expect them to pay you for it. And if that doesn't happen, then, you know, there's going to be a conversation on what can and cannot be done. So that would be at the top of the list of, you know, drivers. I would say the second one would be probably business motivation to say, if I do this, there is some kind of an incentive out there that's going to help me tap into certain things, or it's going to be good for my business because I'm going to be able to tap into additional business opportunities, either market penetration or premium price. I would say the third one would be regulations. Obviously, you got to comply with the law, but everybody feels like our Environmental Protection Agency and USDA, to a certain extent, have done a great job kind of like blanketing the baseline of what needs to be done in terms of environmental protection. And you have to follow so many rules anyway. So everything extra beyond that has to have some kind of a business model attached to it. I would say there's almost very little understanding or knowledge of concepts like IPCC at the farm level community, right? IPCC, United, what the United Nations is trying to do, Paris Accord. I mean, people probably have heard about it, but if you ask them what exactly does that mean, they won't know. Okay, well, I might pick up on on the comment there around supply chains and, and food companies, you know, expecting more, demanding more, but you know, farmers at the other end saying, well, if you're going to impose more costs, that's going to be rewarded some way. You know, how is that playing out? Are farmers getting those rewards? Are there indications that those rewards are coming from those those food companies in the future? Or, or is it a bit of a, a standoff at the moment saying, we want this to be delivered to this standard and we're going to pay you the same as we have historically? I think the take-home message there is that the discussion is still ongoing. I think there is a fair understanding from both sides that there's going to have to be a business plan associated with it. Uh, Somehow, somebody's going to have to pay for it. Some people are pointing to consumers as being the ones that have to pay for it, and that might or might not be the case. The way we like to look at it, though, at Rabo is to design approaches that pay for themselves. So if you, again, come back to that, sustainability backbone of action plan where you do a materiality study and create baselines in the hotspots and do goals and key performance indicators and, you know, take innovation and and apply it. And then you reshuffle everything every five years. If you look at that roadmap, as long as action crosses over the three elements of sustainability at all times, I think you're going to end up at a place where you actually going to see additional optimization and better practices and things like improved business economics, better environmental aspects, and better cost that are going to, or reduce cost, right? That's going to balance itself out. Now, it's not that easy to do that, and it's not straightforward. So you you kind of need some 
seed money if you want, at least for a transition period. And this is where I feel like Rabobank can play a huge role. And so it's easy for us to come into the market and say, hey, we can transition you or we're here to be your partner, transition to more sustainable agriculture. I think the question that we get all the time from our farmers and ranchers is transition from what to what? Like, who's going to help me figure out where I'm at? Where do I need to go? Which direction? What do I need to do? So, so we're trying to bridge that gap as well, as much as possible. Yeah. So how do you have those conversations with clients on the ground? How do those conversations kind of play out and, and how do you pitch it to clients? Yeah. So let me start by giving a little bit of a context there. So I personally think that our farmers and ranchers are some of the smartest people I've ever met. Like it's incredible. Not the amount of education, like some of our clients are like double PhDs in agronomy. I mean, hardly anybody can go to and tell you more about how production should work than these guys. So hats off on that. Further than that, there is a tremendous track of continuous improvement that has happened in the U.S. agriculture in general over the last five to seven decades. Just a couple of stats. So the U.S. agriculture produces 360% more corn per acre since 1947. 360%. I mean, that's insane. 45% more milk per pound of feed since about four decades ago and so on. So it goes on and on like that. And it's hard to go to the knowing all that. They're smart and they've done amazing with, you know, the multi-generational farming that's happening in the U.S. It's hard for us to come in and say, hey, uh, let's go to a more sustainable agriculture. They go like, what? what are you talking about? But we have to recognize that. We have to start with a praise and we have to start with an acknowledgement. And I think the sweet spot that we have, the angle that we have, is basically to start a conversation around, look, you can continue that journey. And over the next 30 years, maybe we can double exactly what has happened in the past five to seven decades. Because we have an opportunity to feed 10 billion people, we can be part of that solution. And they, they kind of understand that and they like that. And that's when the questions come in. They go like, all right, where do I go? Like, what do I need to do? So as you know, we have this methodology, uh, internal methodology that looks at uh, assessing clients' performance in certain sustainability aspects that are very well balanced, environmental, social, and economic. And that helps us in a way to know where is the conversation going to start, right? So, so if we see that, hey, this is an area of water stress, and we see that there is an opportunity from that assessment that might be an opportunity to start measuring maybe certain water metrics helps us basically start the conversation that, that route. So we almost use this internal methodology that we have as a hotspot analysis or materiality analysis to figure out where the clients can act upon more sustainable agriculture. Secondly, I think the main thing that's a driver for farmers and ranchers are farming or business decision-making tools. So it's really good to have data, and a lot of people are pointing to the need of data, but raw data doesn't give you much. So what you need to do is to put it into some kind of a decision-making indicator, if you want, or assessment methodology that plays with scenarios where you say, based on the data, here's where you are or where I am as a farmer today. Here are some scenarios that could happen in the future. Am I still going to be at the same place or not? So, so these are some of the opportunities where we're piloting certain things in terms of soil health, 
predictive models, water use and availability predictive models with our clients. And last but not least, I think, depending on the market segment, one of the biggest opportunity we have is food waste reduction at farm level. We're not talking about food that consumers buy and, you know, take it home and then some of it is wasted. We're talking about the fact that the supply chain expects a certain look and feel and size and cosmetic of a product. And not everything is matching that all the time. So then you're left with certain things that are absolutely perfect that could hit the shelf, but they're not. They go into other directions. They're not wasted. but So taking all that that's good food and put it back into the food system and into human consumption, I think it's a huge opportunity as well. How are farmers responding to those messages? You've mentioned continuous improvement a couple of times, which I think is a fantastic term. Is, is that kind of how this is evolving? Farmers, you know, evolving their systems progressively, getting better, as you've pointed out a few times, as historically they've always done? Or are there other farmers that are taking more of a, a step change around making a fundamental change to their system or, or land use or a bit of a, a combination of both? I'm going to answer this uh, with an example first, and then I'll elaborate a little more. So in the last couple of years, we ran a carbon credits, carbon sequestration model in the U.S. that started with basically a pilot with a few clients that were really excited about implementing certain regenerative agriculture practices and us basically monitoring carbon sequestration in the soil associated with that. And we migrated that stage of the pilot into trying to follow the protocols that exist out there around carbon credits because we were thinking there's a there must be a huge opportunity to actually issue certified carbon credits. So what we realized quickly is that the expectation or the image or the if you want the the way we expect things to work versus the way US agriculture works are two different planets. So the amount of regenerative agriculture cover crop and no-till that has happened in the areas where people think that that needs to change in the last 20 years in the U.S. It's absolutely phenomenal. So the starting point is way ahead, right, from what we expect things to be. And then you go like, how do you deal with that? How do you take these guys and, and take them to the next level? So when we talk about continuous improvement, it's a matter of understanding what that means. So I, I mentioned before that you do a materiality assessment, you pick your three to five hotspots, and then you work on those hotspots for about five years. You put an action plan together and you drive change or continuous improvement in those areas. Now, here's what people are missing in the realm of continuous improvement and sustainability. Five years around when you do another materiality analysis, if you've done things right, you shouldn't get the same five hotspots. Okay, so when we say continuous improvement, it doesn't mean driving things all the way to the ground because we're not going to be able, you're going to hit a wall at some point. You're not going to be able to go lower than that. It means find other aspects of sustainability that are opportunities where you can drive change and continuous improvement that's going to give you that continuous doing more with less, not necessarily in the same thing over and over again. So if we explain it like that to clients, they go, look, all of a sudden they go like, oh, wow, yeah, right. So yeah, I already done cover crops and uh, no-till for 20 years. How about even within regenerative agriculture, how about I look at 
precision agriculture or integrating cattle or, you know, a whole bunch of other ideas where you can monitor soil health improvement and reduction in input costs that's going to help them get there. Yeah, I mean, I really like that concept because that's also, like you say, it's acknowledging actually what's done in the past, right? Like it's actually saying you may have already addressed your fundamental key issues and, and now the one you deal with is, is this, but then that will need recalibrated in a, in a couple of years. So it's not just picking the one or two and, and to your point, Christian, going further and further down, maybe getting to the 1% gains when actually there's some 20%, 30% gains to be made in other areas that, that over time have actually become more important within your farming business. I, th- I think that's a fantastic concept. And that's why when I said earlier that, you know, if you talk about things like IPCC and, and certain bodies out there that are really laser focused on one aspect of sustainability, I think the place where our farming community doesn't connect with that is that it's only about one slice of it. It doesn't talk about optimization, continuous improvement that happens in other areas that might be equally important or or as important. So they feel like there is a disconnect between the ask out there and the realities on the land. And that's why they're not in tune necessarily to what's happening out there at the global level. Yeah. And they're also largely outside the control of individual farmers, right? And a heck of a lot, heck of, a lot of uncertainty. You, you've been involved with policy. Policy is inherently uncertain. And if you're trying to attach certain actions or behaviors to try and anticipate what policy looks like, it's always going to be challenging because it's always going to be a moving target. So yeah, again, like like the concept of just focusing on, on your own business, what you can control, what the fundamental issues are and, and improving over time. Yep, totally agree. I might change tack a, a little bit and talk about consumers in the US. The US is a very important export market for New Zealand. We still send a, a lot of product over there, um, particularly red meat, um, amongst some others. In terms of expectations around sustainability attributes of US consumers, is is that changing? You know, often we hear that the market is demanding more in terms of both sustainability attributes and transparency around adhering to those attributes. Is is that your experience in the US, is, is that kind of what, what you're picking up within the market there? I think for the most part, buying food at the consumer level, it's still a check-the-box commodity type of a thing. And you always kind of like be attached to either aspects of it, economics, which is price, or availability. So do I have a variety of options or not? I think the expectation in terms of, it's not just sustainability, but in terms of transparency, food safety, production methods, taking care of people in that production. I mean, all these aspects that we talk about, deforestation is not that big of of an issue in the U.S., but say it was. I think they would expect the producers or the processors to have business to business taking care of that before they actually put it on the shelf. Personally, I don't think they're asking for that. They're expecting all that to be in there without necessarily having to make a choice between, oh my goodness, this product only uses 20% less water than the other product, or this one has a better carbon footprint than the other one. I think if that happens, that'll be a niche market in for the U.S. consumers. I know the brands and the retailers do surveys all the time to the end consumers and and they present some of these cases where they say consumers are asking for such and such, but it so much depends how you conduct the survey and how you ask the questions. So if you go to somebody and say, hey, is it important that we save water? Of course it is. Like Now, are they going to make a, a differentiation between two labels, one of them having this and one of them having that, and 
pay a little more for this one versus that one? I don't think that's the case at this point in time. I think certain brands are perceived as more sustainable than others. I think simple claims, although they're true or not, in terms of whether they're more sustainable alternatives of more natural, more organic, which are not necessarily more sustainable alternatives, but they're perceived by consumers as as being better, healthier, better for in general for the environment. I think those fly a lot more. The organic market, by the way, it was expected to take off and cover a large percentage of, you know, the buying decision that the consumers buy now. And it, it has been flat for the last, I don't know, three, four years, even more than that. So it's probably still less than 10%. And we don't see that expanding more dramatically than it is right now. Why? Because, okay, if that's good, then you as a producer should shift everything to organic and just provide it to me at the same price. So, you know, you know what's better. I don't have to ask for it. There are efforts out there from the brand perspective to present, let's say, certain products as better for you, better for the planet or better for the next generation type of a marketing claim out there. I haven't seen anything taken off as much as it happened in other parts of the world. So our board of directors, member Barry Martin, had a great presentation one time talking about how in certain parts of Europe, they're looking at a traffic light type of a thing in terms of sustainability, ranking whether a, a certain product you know matches certain environmental attributes of sustainability one way or another. Uh, saying that there is an appeal to actually launch that and have the consumers make a choice between those products. I would say in the US, if that ever happens, the expectation would be that the retailers or the producers would not put anything on the shelf other than green. Like if it's yellow, like why, why would you want to put the yellow product out there? If it's yellow, just, you know, don't do it. Don't use it. Don't change it. So I think that's where the mentality is at this point in time. Now, certain products from certain countries, again, have a perception of being more sustainable. So New Zealand has a great reputation. So does other parts like Canada and other things where if you get certain products that are unique to a specific country, they perceive it as genuine and more sustainable just by definition. Yeah, so what I'm hearing is more about having a trusted brand than necessarily any individual particular lack of a better term, sustainability attributes with it. Um, but as you've said, New Zealand has a strong brand. So for us, it's probably more around protecting that brand and continuing to live to that brand. And, and the expectations from the consumers around what a good brand looks like will potentially evolve over time. And, and to your point around the traffic light system, I suppose we've just got to continue to keep hitting those greens because the risk for us is if we don't hit those greens, it really could erode that brand that we've, we've spent many years building up. That's a very good point, because as soon as you, say, start merging sustainability attributes within the brand as you commercialize or, or promote that brand, the expectation is that you're always going to do that and continue to do that. So, so you can't lower the bar anymore and go back and pretend that you haven't done it. You got to speak about it because that's, that's the image that you have now. Yeah, it's a baseline. It's not a premium extra, right? It's just just what's supposed to be built into what we we supply. In terms of a, a final wrap up commentary, when you look at the major risks or opportunities that sustainability represents to the US agri industry, 
you know, what what are your takeaway messages or thoughts there? I think there is a tremendous opportunity for certain members of the industry to come together and create more carrots. I would have expected by now a lot of the trade associations or uh, sustainable roundtables to come up with, let's say, a qualification criteria that would put producers into a certain category if they take action and promote them as as a more sustainable, you know, or doing the right thing, matching the promises or the goals and the key performance indicators that were set for, that the industry set for itself. I don't think that exists today. So they've done materiality studies at the, at the trade association level, for example. They've done all kinds of roadmaps in terms of goals and key performance indicators. But I think they're letting the industry kind of like match action on their own against that with no, I would say, reward for the pioneers or the folks that are actually following that on a daily basis. So I think there is an opportunity there. I think there is an opportunity also for financial institutions to come together and maybe create some kind of a driver from a financial incentive perspective for the rural communities in the U.S. So on the corporate side, you have an ESG performance, right? And and because that's somewhat prescriptive, you can actually set a criteria to say, if a certain organization has followed these ESG steps, then you can create a sustainability link loan and you can tap into some kind of a pool of money that could be provided at a lower interest rate. We don't have anything like that on the rural side. Okay. It's like, there's nothing out there. So it's up to the individual financial organization like ours to go and say, well, I think if they're doing this, that might be a lower risk and therefore we can, you know, do something around that. But it's hard to quantify. So I think that's an opportunity, again, that that I see in the U.S. with maybe uh, creating that measuring stick of what does more sustainable agriculture in terms of performance or type of ESG performance? And it could be, it could start small with regenerative agriculture alone and just say, Farmers that implement certain things and they show that they stay with that could, you know, benefit in some way. And last but not least, I think there is an opportunity for the consulting groups and agronomists to map a little better where opportunities for improvement actually result that are linked to sustainability result into a a tangible business payback, right? So we talked about it the other day. We were looking at, there's so many grants out there. There's so many USDA grants and, you know, Inflation Reduction Act grants that have been granted out there. It'd be really nice to have a mapping of all that. So if I am doing corn and soybean, here's some of the things that I can tap into. And if I'm becoming part of that pilot or that pilot, this is what I can benefit from. And this is what my partner agronomist can do to make a change that will result into me tapping into those grants and at the same time, you know, maybe improve my business outcome as well. So I think there is an opportunity there for consulting groups slash agronomists to do that type of homework as well. Excellent. Look, Christian, thank you very much for the discussion today. I think there's been some fantastic 
insights. A couple of key ones for me is, is again, I, I just really like that concept when we talk about sustainability. It's it's very easy to get caught up in definitions and and focusing on what is good and bad, et cetera, et cetera. But that just fundamental high-level approach is, is doing more with less. What does that look like at an individual farm level? Um, you referred to a materiality assessment in New Zealand. We'd probably talk about risk analysis and, and, and farm plans, but looking at your individual farm plans, what are the, the key opportunities? What are the key barriers? What are the key risks? And, and looking to make improvements at those over time. But the other one I really like is just the attitude you seem to have towards the farmers and really actually just giving them credit for what they've done in the past and, and credit for their ability to improve and, and do you know more and more over time and, and then look to build systems and supports around them to empower them to do it rather than trying to knock them back or control them or to tell them what they need to do. As, as you said, they've, they've been doing this a lot longer and a lot better than a lot of probably the, the advisors that they're having uh, coming up and telling them what to do. And I think that's a fantastic attitude. So look, thank you very much again, Christian. As I said, really enjoyed our, our discussion and, and look forward to, to staying in touch and, and, and seeing how this plays out uh, in, in the US market. Appreciate it, Blake. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Talks Growing Our Future podcast. If you're interested in learning more about how Rubberbank can support you to succeed in the future, please go to rubberbank.co.nz.